We now turn to a couple of medical oncology perspectives on early breast cancer, beginning with Dr. George Sledge, and we started the conversation by discussing a couple of perhaps less noticed data sets from the recent San Antonio Breast Cancer Symposium, beginning with a fascinating study addressing an issue that has been discussed for decades. By way of background, there have been a large number of papers over the years that have looked at timing of menstrual cycle with relation to prognosis. And some of them have suggested that there's a relation between the time of the menstrual cycle when you have surgery and ultimate outcomes. Some have not. And there's, of course, a lot of methodologic issues just simply even trying to figure out where in a woman's menstrual cycle she is. So for many years, while this was considered an interesting observation, but not basically anything you could do anything about, This is a new approach to this, and I think a fascinating one. It works on the assumption that if the timing of the menstrual cycle relationship is real, then perhaps artificially altering it around the time of surgery by giving a depot of progesterone might be beneficial to patients with breast cancer. And so Dr. Badway and colleagues in Mumbai at the Tata Memorial Center, a large cancer center in India, actually performed a randomized controlled trial in which women heading for surgery either received or did not receive depoprogesterone. And I think to the surprise of many, and certainly to the surprise of me, this was a positive trial for the women who received progesterone. And indeed, in the subpopulation of women who had lymph node positive disease resulted in a fairly dramatic improvement in long-term overall survival with about a 10% improvement in overall survival in the lymph node positive population of patients. So very interesting result. I think it's certainly one that's well-deserving of confirmation in other trials. If it is a correct result, it doesn't necessarily mean that the initial hypothesis was correct because large doses of progesterone, of course, could be affecting more receptors than just the estrogen receptor. And this may well be an effect mediated through some other receptor. Part of why I would say that is that the benefit in this trial appeared to be present in both estrogen receptor negative and estrogen receptor positive patients. So for this to be a true result, it has to be mediated via different growth factor receptor within the steroid receptor superfamily. But really fascinating result and certainly well-deserving of a follow-up study. Is there any talk right now in the U.S. cooperative groups following up on it? Not yet, but I'm sure there will be. I mean, this is too simple a intervention not to be followed up. And I guess I might add, if it is followed up, this could be an intervention that would be readily available around the world, not just as in most of our recent new agents only available to relatively wealthy countries. This would be available, in essence, to every patient on the planet who had breast cancer. And that, I think, is part of its fascination. I guess the other thing is that theoretically it could apply to postmenopausal patients, correct? Indeed. In theory, it might well apply to both pre- and post-menopausal patients. And it kind of reminds me of some of the stuff that Bernie Fisher did in terms of the idea of sort of perioperative therapy, the laboratory work. And then when the neoadjuvant studies sort of didn't, quote, pan out that well, you know, we didn't really hear too much about it. But I guess it brings up the issue of what happens during surgery. Yes. And, you know, if the initial hypothesis is correct, then it argues that the period around surgery is actually a crucial period in terms of metastogenesis. Now, I think many of us have some problems with that as a hypothesis because we know that in most cases, women probably have microscopic metastatic disease for fairly prolonged periods before they ever see a physician. But it's certainly possible that as a result of the surgery itself, cytokines or growth factors are being released and that those are affecting microscopic metastatic sites. And I think that's certainly an interesting and testable hypothesis. 
The other sort of quiet San Antonio paper I wanted your take on was the study looking at the incidence of lung cancer in women with breast cancer receiving anti-estrogens. That one sort of caught my attention. Any thoughts? Well, again, I think really interesting. And part of what's fascinating about this has to do with estrogen receptor biology. First, we know that in women, the majority of non-small cell lung cancers are adenocarcinomas. And we've known for a long time, dating back for decades, that many of these cancers had estrogen receptor in the cancer. So it's certainly a you know, reasonable possibility that alterations in the estrogen internal estrogen milieu might have some effect on these estrogen receptors in these adenocarcinomas. But there really wasn't much in the way of real data on this, and certainly there haven't been large trials of estrogen-based therapies for non-small cell lung cancer. Here, however, we have, albeit as a result of a population-based analysis rather than a prospective trial, certainly the suggestion that estrogen blockade might have a significant effect as, a, in essence, a chemoprevention therapy for non-small cell lung cancer. And this, of course, also raises the question, since we know that chemo prevention in breast cancer is tightly tied to treatment of microscopic and metastatic disease, whether or not hormonal manipulations are something that need to be considered in the, perhaps to say, in the adjuvant setting for adenocarcinomas, the lung. But a truly fascinating result. I mean, could you envision any population, you know, sort of a chemo prevention study that you could actually think of doing or higher risk group? Well, I guess the good news is that, or the bad news, depending on how you look at it, is that we have a well-defined high-risk population who develops lung cancer with a regular, fairly high rate, and that, of course, is patients who are long-term cigarette smokers. There have certainly been prevention studies in that population with retinoids and vitamin therapies. I can't imagine any particular reason why you couldn't conduct a similar study, say, with an agent like tamoxifen or raloxifen, in a similar population of patients. I'm trying to think whether there would have been enough lung cancers like in the breast cancer prevention studies to look at that. Probably not, I would imagine. Yeah, they were younger, yeah, right, non-smokers. Probably not. Since they were women in their 50s, I would imagine the majority were non-smokers. Probably not, but it might well be worth going back and taking another look since we have now not one study, but multiple studies with tamoxifen and raloxifen. It would be kind of interesting to do a Oxford overview sort of approach to second primary tumors in that population. Maybe we can just take a step back. If you were going to give a CME lecture to a bunch of surgeons, and you may have, or maybe you're going to, what are some of the things that you think are most important for surgeons to know about from sort of a medical oncology perspective, particularly new developments in breast cancer? Well, I think first, to give credit where credit is due, to this date, breast cancer surgery cures more cancers than any other modality for breast cancer. So the role of the surgeon continues to be of of striking importance for patients with breast cancer. It's certainly evolved as therapies have evolved. And in addition to the actual role of the surgeon in removing cancer, of course, probably the major role of the surgeon today is as an information gatherer who allows us to get the crucial information that directs systemic therapies. That crucial information today, I would say, certainly includes steroid receptor content of the tumor, the HER2 status of the tumor, and increasingly in the relatively large population of estrogen receptor positive early stage patients, genomic data such as the mammoprant or aquatype DX type assays that allow us to direct whether or not patients receive or don't receive chemotherapy for early stage breast cancer.
Maybe we can pick up on each one of those points. Where are we right now in terms of sort of quality control in ER testing? It's such a critical test, and yet there's been a lot of questions about how accurately it really gets done. Well, for both estrogen receptor and HER2, there have, of course, recently been significant efforts by the College of American Pathologists and the American Society of Clinical Oncology working together to come up with new standards for steroid receptor testing and for HER2 testing. And I think it's fascinating, perhaps, that we've been doing steroid receptor analyses certainly for over 30 years, and it took till now to come up with a standardization of that steroid receptor testing. But that's certainly well along the way, and I think, you know, will certainly be the new standard, as the ASCO-CAP guidelines, of course, are already the new standard for HER2 testing. I think how good we are at steroid receptor testing probably depends on who you look at. There have certainly been a large number of anecdotal examples of tumors that, when retested, have been called estrogen receptor positive in one place and estrogen receptor negative in another, or vice versa. And anecdotes are always dangerous, but in my clinic, for instance, I have a patient who has metastatic breast cancer that was called triple negative breast cancer. The patient received literally years of chemotherapy for metastatic disease. The first thing I did when I saw her was to retest her. I found that In our laboratory, she was strongly steroid receptor positive, and she, of course, is now responding to a hormonal therapy for her metastatic disease. So this is, I think, a reality that in a certain number of cases, for whatever reason, one laboratory may get it wrong and another laboratory may get it right. Having said that, I think some of the recent data would suggest the problem may not be quite as huge as I would have guessed five or ten years ago. In the Eastern Cooperative Oncology Group, Sunil Badve, our breast cancer pathologist, as part of an analysis that looked at steroid receptor testing using the genomic health assay, also did central steroid receptor testing compared to local hospital steroid receptor testing. And in fact, the concordance between central and local testing for steroid receptor status in that fairly large data set based on a contemporaneous trial was actually quite good. Uh, It was in the 90% range, and I don't know that we're going to ever get a whole lot better than 90% for just about any testing, but it's perhaps not quite as bad as we once thought it might be. Part of why this should be less of a problem is just simply that with steroid receptors, when one does immunohistochemistry, there should, in essence, always be an internal control within the tissue where you ought to be able to see normal gland staining for estrogen receptor. So this is still an important issue. It certainly needs care And in particular, from a surgeon's standpoint, requires care in terms of collection of tissue for adequate preservation and testing. So I think we're about to get to HER2. So HER2 testing, I think, of course, still remains a major issue. And I, based on just about every data set I've seen, still have concerns about problems with HER2 testing going from one laboratory to another. I think certainly in the past, but still to a certain extent to the present, there's been problems with concordance in terms of HER2 testing mostly around immunohistochemistry, but I would say not entirely just immunohistochemistry, whereas I would have thought fish testing would have been a fairly straightforward, gold standard sort of test. In fact, studies have suggested that from one lab to another, one can see differences in terms of the results of the fish testing. So this remains a considerable problem. Again, the ASCO-CAP guidelines, which came into place about a year and a half ago now, I think are going a long way to improving this. And if I were a surgeon, one thing I would insist upon would be that my local pathologist be following ASCO-CAP guidelines. And that's, I think, a fairly simple question to ask of one's local pathologist. 
You mentioned mammoprint and Agatype, and you are one of the authors on the paper that was just published in Lancet Oncology and at the same time was presented at San Antonio looking at the SWOG data with node positive. Can you kind of go through that whole project? So SWOG 8814 is a very old trial. The 88 refers to 1988, the year the trial was initially generated. And it was a trial that randomized patients either to tamoxifen alone or to chemotherapy plus tamoxifen, with chemotherapy and tamoxifen being given sequentially or in combination. It's a very old trial, very important one, that suggested first that chemotherapy could be a benefit in addition to hormonal therapy in estrogen receptor-positive patients, but also suggested, based on some early analyses, that the patients who were the most strikingly estrogen receptor-positive probably got relatively less benefit from chemotherapy and relatively more benefit from hormonal therapy. Subsequent to the oncotype data in lymph node negative patients, the question obviously came up as whether or not the same biology that was seen in lymph node negative patients would also be seen in lymph node positive patients. And this is a very important question. In the era of molecular biology in breast cancer, is all we need to know the molecular biology or is lymph node status still quite important in terms of analyzing patients? So 8814, I think, gave us an opportunity to look at this. In analyses done by the Southwest Oncology Group and their colleagues in the intergroup led by Kathy Albane, I think the data, I would say, is certainly consistent with the data that was seen in lymph node negative patients. And that is to say that there is a population of patients who, based on recurrent score for Oncotype DX, appear to receive less benefit with the use of adjuvant systemic chemotherapy. There's a population characterized typically by having a high recurrent score that appears to get relatively more benefit through the use of adjuvant chemotherapy in addition to hormonal therapy. And I view this as part of a suite of studies that give us a roughly similar result across lymph node status and across tumor sizes. And I'll add, of course, that there have also been neoadjuvant data looking at oncotype that also give one similar results. Now, as a co-author, I have a conflict of interest, but I'll also add some caveats here that I think are important. This is a retrospective subset analysis of a single trial. It doesn't have all the tissues from all of the patients in that trial. And so at the end of the day, if we look at the population of patients in whom we might be changing therapy based on this trial, that is to say low recurrent score patients with lymph node positive disease, in fact, we're talking about a pretty tiny population of patients who were analyzed, probably somewhere around 145, 150 patients. So I think that's a major caveat if we're talking about overturning two decades or more of adjuvant chemotherapy for this population of patients. So I think, you know, this is certainly a case where we would love to see more data become available. Whether or not there is more data out there that we might be able to look at, because we're talking about questions that are 20 years old now, may be a tough one to discover. But I think my take on this is that biology certainly matters, and that molecular biology can certainly identify a population of patients in both lymph node negative and lymph node positive patients who probably get relatively little benefit from the addition of chemotherapy, and another population that probably gets relatively higher benefit. Now, getting back to the issue of nodal status, nodal status still clearly matters. What was fascinating to me about the 8814 data is that the low recurrence score population among the lymph node positive patients get relatively little benefit from chemotherapy, but still at the same time have a relatively high risk of recurrence. At a decade out, there's you know, roughly 40% of these patients are having a breast cancer event. So low recurrence score is not the same as low risk 
in a lymph node positive population. It may well identify a population of patients who are simply resistant to current standard therapies, both hormonal therapy and chemotherapy, and may well indicate a population of patients where we need to find novel therapies. Now, in my own practice, because I think this gets back to what do you do with the patient in front of you, if you have, say, a 51-year-old woman who is perfectly healthy and comes into your clinic and has five positive lymph nodes and is estrogen receptor positive and has a low recurrence score, are you not going to give that patient adjuvant chemotherapy based upon this data? I think, you know, that's kind of a gut-wrenching decision, to be honest. And I had this discussion with patients. I've told them that this is, while it's an important study, it's also somewhat of a thin read to bear a fairly heavy weight from a decision standpoint. Now, at the same time, I've also had patients who've come to me who are 73-year-old, perhaps somewhat frail, who have one or two positive lymph nodes and a low recurrence score. And in honesty, this is as much as an excuse not to treat these patients as a reason. And I think certainly for some of those patients, I have counseled them based on this sort of data that I think it's reasonable for them to receive hormonal therapy alone. I guess the message has always come out that, you know, archetype or test similar to that or is sort of oriented towards people on the fence, so to speak. And I could envision that 51-year-old, you know, there are people out there who are very, very adverse to chemo where it might be helpful, A, to give them more permission not to receive it, and B, maybe if they have a high recurrence score, you know, more impetus to receive treatment. I think that's absolutely correct. I think, of course, anyone who deals with breast cancer is well aware of the fact that we negotiate with patients more than we tell patients what to do. And this, I think, is increasingly going to be a case of that. Now, if you ask me whether or not the 8814 data is, in essence, correct, my sense is probably yes. You know, the difference between being lymph node negative and having one positive lymph node in terms of ultimate prognosis is a small one, not a huge one. You know, it's a few percent difference in terms of ultimate prognosis. And if you ask me if the biology of breast cancer changes going from a 1.7-centimeter tumor that's lymph node negative to a 1.7-centimeter tumor that has one positive lymph node, it strikes me as unlikely. So I actually think this is probably the correct answer, but I think with all the caveats and cautions that ought to go with it. You mentioned getting more data, and I was kind of surprised. At San Antonio, I met with Dr. Luca Gianni and found out that his group, the Michelangelo group, is actually conducting a prospective trial that as part of it is going to randomize between chemo or not in patients with no positive tumors that are low recurrence score. Were you aware of that? No, I wasn't, but more power to them. When we looked at this in the Breast Steering Committee, the old breast cancer intergroup, this actually takes a fairly large number of patients to answer this question. I mean, our analysis was that this is in the thousands of patients similar to what was seen with the Taylor X trial. So I'm happy that they're taking on this burden. It is a fairly large trial to answer this question. Also, the idea of, you know, not just trying to verify this specific thing, but just to collect tissue prospectively. And I, to me, that's always been sort of part of the Taylor X, you know, mission is maybe there are going to be other markers that come out that we can look at later. I think anyone who believes that the initial answer provided by Oncotype is going to be the only answer is probably wrong. I think as we learn more about the molecular biology of breast cancer, we're certainly going to learn more answers. And as our knowledge of genomics increases, we're going to have perhaps some surprises ahead of us. You also mentioned Mammaprint. Can you talk a little bit about what we know about Mammaprint and how that compares to what we know about Oncotype? 
So mammoprint is a somewhat larger gene set, roughly 70 genes as opposed to 16 genes, that was developed in Europe by Laura Vandeveer and her colleagues. And in publications, including one in the New England Journal of Medicine, this group has demonstrated that in both lymph node negative and in lymph node positive patients, that one can separate out the sheep from the wolves in a way similar to one can with Oncotype DX from a prognostic standpoint. The issues or problems with this approach have been primarily ones related to tissue collection, and that is to say that the mammoprint, as originally developed, required fresh frozen tissue as opposed to formalin-fixed paraffin-embedded tissue. And I would say that was perhaps the major wrap on the mammoprint. If one looks at mammoprint and oncotype, and indeed if one looks at a whole bunch of other genomic signatures that have been looked at in terms of determining prognosis and predicting response to therapy, one actually gets a very consistent picture across all of these, and that is to say they all at some level measure estrogen receptor and estrogen-regulated proteins. They all at some level measure HER2 and HER2-regulated proteins. But perhaps crucially, what appears to be important in all of them appears to be the proliferation gene cassette. And indeed, a recent meta-analysis of all of these different gene signatures has said that the proliferation cassette of genes is what makes these valuable in terms of determining prognosis and prediction. So I suspect that at some very basic level, mammoprint and oncotype are measuring something quite similar in patients. I guess the one thing, you know, I haven't seen that much, at least convincing data in terms of prediction as opposed to prognosis with mammoprint. There was some data at ASCO that was presented, but it kind of didn't really seem as strong as with oncotype. What's your take on that question? Well, it's harder to do, of course, because if one wants to do this, one needs data from a prospective randomized trial comparing treatment with no treatment. And having fresh frozen tissue from an era that asked that question, of course, was always tough. And so I think, yeah, the data certainly isn't as solid with mammoprint as it is with oncotype. Again, I feel pretty strongly that the biology is similar, so I suspect one would get a very similar result. But having said that, the data is certainly stronger just because the tissue collection has been easier when one looks at a technology based around formal and fixed paraffin-embedded tissue. Now, Memoprint is available. Is there any situation right now where you think outside of a protocol setting it's even worth using? I don't use it. So, you know, I would have to say in my clinic it's not a question that comes up. I mean, I've always used the Oncotype, but I certainly have no qualms with those who would use the mammoprint. It has been used in patients with ER-negative tumors. I'm not sure there's that much data. What about ER-negative? Well, among ER-negative tumors, I think, you know, the real simple question one has to ask oneself is, you know, is there a population of patients who you would not recommend adjuvant chemotherapy to based on existing data? And I would say the answer to that question is no. It's really hard for me to pick out a population of ER-negative patients who I wouldn't recommend adjuvant chemotherapy to right now. It's an open question, but again, I think to answer the question, one would almost need to go back to one of the early adjuvant trials that randomized to receive or not receive adjuvant chemotherapy for steroid receptor-negative patients. And that, interestingly enough, is possible to do with formalin-fixed paraffin-embedded tissue, but hasn't been done yet. Let's talk a little bit about anti-HER therapy, and it's hard to believe we're coming up on the fifth anniversary of the famous education session that you chaired at the 2005 ASCO meeting, which was the first report of the adjuvant trastuzumab studies. Where are we today right now in terms of anti-HER therapy in the early stage setting? So first, in terms of that initial collection of studies, we now have some longer-term follow-up data. I think what's 
reassuring is that the initial results based on very short follow-up for all of these studies have held up over time and that we're still seeing significant improvements in disease-free survival and overall survival. Somewhat disappointingly, I would say, longer-term follow-up does not really suggest a plateau in terms of disease-free survival. So as in other adjuvant settings, I think we're still seeing evidence of patients recurring later on, and we'll need much longer-term follow-up to see how significant or how much of a problem this is. If we look at the types of therapies available to us, those, in essence, are using an approach such as was used by the North American Intergroup or the NSABP, in which one received chemotherapy with Herceptin, particularly taxane-based chemotherapy with Herceptin, or approaches in which Herceptin was given sequentially, and this includes one arm of the N9831 trial as well as the HERA trial done in Europe, or a third approach in which one uses a totally non-anthracycline-based regimen, such as was done in Dennis Slayman's Breast International Group trial. I think one can summarize all of these trials by saying that trastuzumab is a pretty good drug in the adjuvant setting and that with all of these approaches, we see long-term benefits for patients. Edith Perez, in an update of the N9831 trial, presented data suggesting but not proving, I would characterize it as, that combination therapy is probably better than sequential therapy. Though, interestingly, though the p-value looked pretty good, it didn't quite meet the guidelines of the trial to call it a positive trial. Similarly, Dennis Slayman recently presented an update on the BCIRG trial that, again, suggested that a non-anthracycline-based regimen and an anthracycline-based regimen both gave good long-term outcomes. If one looks at the trial results from the BCIRG, the anthracycline-based regimen disease-free survival curve is a little bit above the disease-free survival curve for the non-anthracycline-based regimen. Depending on where you're sitting in the audience, those differences may look profound or they may look small to you. The problem with that trial, of course, was that the trial was not statistically designed to ask that question and therefore lost in discussions of that trial is the fact that we just simply don't have the power to tell whether or not one of those regimens is better than the other. And I think that allows one to say that either regimen probably represents a reasonable approach for some patients. One of the more controversial areas that's been discussed now since that first presentation of the data are patients who have node-negative tumors that are small, under a sonometer. What do we know right now about that issue? Well, I think we know a little bit more than we knew a few years ago. A few years ago, and by a few years ago, I mean as recently as two or three years ago, I would say that we had inadequate data to suggest even whether or not those patients were at high risk for recurrence compared to other patients with tumors less than a centimeter who are lymph node negative. So I would say the weight of the data now suggests that patients with small HER2 positive tumors are at higher risk for uh, recurrence of their breast cancer. And if you, say, look at a patient who has a tumor between 5 millimeters and 10 millimeters who is lymph node negative and HER2 positive, that risk in various trials is probably, in general, somewhere in the range of 10 to 20%. You know, that's a population of patients historically where we thought it reasonable to give them adjuvant chemotherapy or adjuvant therapy of some sort. Now, that, of course, doesn't answer the question of what adjuvant therapy they should receive. Should they be receiving trastuzumab as adjuvant therapy? If so, should they be receiving it with chemotherapy or not? Or perhaps should they be receiving chemotherapy alone for a small tumor? And we, of course, have no prospective data looking at that issue. Though There are a number of registration trials currently 
that are looking at combinations of chemotherapy and trastuzumab. What about the T1A tumors under 5 millimeters? And, you know, in the beginning, people kind of were using the 5 millimeter bar. You didn't hear people talking too much about going beyond that. And I'm hearing more people talk now about treating even T1A tumors. How do you approach it? I typically don't treat T1A tumors with trastuzumab or chemotherapy. I don't know if that's right or wrong. I think first off, of course, we don't see many of those tumors, thankfully. But secondly, the number of three millimeter tumors that are likely to relapse, I think, is likely to be quite low. So I typically not offered treatment to those patients. You also mentioned the possibility of trastuzumab without chemo, which is, you know, certainly in the advanced disease setting, we know that that can have a significant impact. And you can envision, you know, older patients with comorbidities who you really don't want to give chemo to. But I don't hear too much about that being done. Do you ever do that? Oh, I've done it occasionally. You know, I just, again, anecdotally, I had a patient who had triple positive breast cancer, ERPR, HER2 positive breast cancer, who was a lady in her 70s who was somewhat frail. And I, you know, after thinking about it long and hard, I did offer that therapy to the patient. I think it's a very fascinating question. If one looks at the HERA trial, where patients received all their HER2-targeted therapy after chemotherapy, that trial, of course, was strikingly beneficial despite the lack of a combination of chemotherapy and trastuzumab-based therapy. So I suspect that there are patients who get benefit from trastuzumab alone. We certainly know in the metastatic setting that there are patients who get benefit from the combination of hormonal therapy and trastuzumab if they're estrogen receptor positive and HER2 positive. So this is a bias, and of course my bias in a buck will get you a ride on a bus in Indianapolis. (laughs) But I don't think it's certainly unreasonable for selected patients. I guess, too, we've heard, at least from a laboratory point of view, and I don't know whether you buy into this, the possibility that anti-HER therapy could in some way potentiate endocrine therapy. Yes, I mean, that's certainly a consistent finding. If you look particularly at tamoxifen, where HER2-positive tumors have a relative or complete resistance to tamoxifen in the laboratory, and indeed, of course, there's some data in the clinic as well for that, trastuzumab certainly appears to at least partially reverse resistance to tamoxifen in that population of patients. We also, I might add, have interesting data, not with trastuzumab, but with lapatinib from the laboratory that if one has an estrogen receptor positive, HER2 positive tumor, and one treats it with a HER2 targeted therapy alone, one in fact gets upregulation of the estrogen receptor and it now becomes the principal driver of growth in those cancers. So one can certainly imagine that shutting off multiple growth factor receptor pathways is going to be important going forward. Now, I look at this as, you know, the criminal trying to escape town, and there are multiple ways out of town. If you throw up just one roadblock, it's reasonably likely the criminal will take another route and escape. That kind of brings up also the issue of brain metastasis. In the beginning, it wasn't clear whether or not we were going to see an increased incidence of people having brain-only metastases, sort of, again, as an escape phenomena. Five years later now, what do we know about that? Well, actually, I think even five years ago, what a fair amount of data suggested, including some work that we published a few years ago, was that HER2-positive disease is tropic for brain tissue. If you look at a large number of studies dating back for a fairly long period of time, in just about every study, what one sees is that the HER2-positive tumors are more likely to undergo metastasis to the brain. And that was whether or not one was talking about the pre-trastuzumab era in the adjuvant setting or the current era. So I think it's reasonably likely that if one has a HER2-positive tumor, one's more likely to develop a brain metastasis over time. 
Trastuzumab, of course, is not particularly good at penetrating into the brain. Monoclonal antibodies are large, clunky molecules that have trouble penetrating through the blood-brain barrier. And therefore, it's perhaps not surprising that this is not a great treatment for either microscopic or gross metastasis to the brain. I think, you know, in the future, what we're likely to see is increasing use of small molecule receptor tyrosine kinase inhibitors. We, of course, already have some data that lapatinib crosses into the brain, at least in some patients, and can induce remissions, at least in some patients. Nancy Lynn and her colleagues at Dana-Farber, working with investigators around the country, have now performed a number of trials suggesting that a small but real percentage of patients will have objective remissions for brain metastasis with lapatinib. And I think we're certainly going to see as new small molecule receptor tyrosine kinase inhibitors come along, increase interest in this area. That kind of also leads into the second generation of adjuvant trials in HER2-positive disease, and there are two major concepts, at least two major, that I know of. Can you kind of talk about what we're looking at right now? Well, so the two major concepts are, first, if we look at HER2 as a pathway, if we block that HER2 pathway at more than one point, will we get increased benefit? And in particular, with the FDA-approved drugs, both trastuzumab and lapatinib, if we do an upstairs-downstairs approach, will we get increased benefit through the use of that approach? And of course, you're talking about the fact that lapatinib as a TKI works inside the cell, whereas trastuzumab as an antibody is outside the cell. That's correct. I call that upstairs-downstairs approach. And at this year's San Antonio Breast Cancer Symposium, we had an update of a trial in the far advanced, and I mean very far advanced disease setting that randomized patients to either lapatinib alone or to lapatinib and trastuzumab. And that trial is now showing a survival advantage in a very heavily pretreated population for the combination of lapatinib and trastuzumab. And I think that certainly gives one great hope that the ALTO trial, which is directly looking at this issue in the adjuvant setting, may turn out to be a positive trial for the combination of those two agents. And I guess before you go into the next one, I know you were a co-author on that study, really one of the most striking, I think, papers of the year. The other thing that was interesting about that was that the people who weren't randomized to the combination were allowed to cross over to it afterwards, and still there was a survival benefit. Yes, and that's interesting because in some ways it's very similar to the initial pivotal trial by Slayman where crossover was allowed and one still saw a survival benefit for the patients who received trastuzumab up front. And it kind of suggests to me that In just about any disease setting, the more effective you are at shutting off the HER2 pathway, and the earlier on that you do it, the better off that you'll be. I mean, it's a very interesting question that perhaps separates it from hormonal therapy, where we've not actually been able to see combination therapy in general in the metastatic setting giving one particular advantage or any particular evidence that doing this very early on makes a huge amount of difference. So, yeah, I think it's a fascinating result. The other strategy that's being looked at in the adjuvant study, major adjuvant study, is combining bevacizumab, the anti-VEGF agent, with trastuzumab. Can you talk about that? That's the BETH study of the NSABP and CIRG. So this is based on both preclinical and clinical data. The preclinical data, and indeed the clinical data, is such that HER2-positive tumors we know pump out large amounts of vascular endothelial growth factor. So manipulation of the HER2 pathway in and of itself alters the amount of circulating VEGF. The preclinical data also suggested that the combination of bevacizumab and HER2-targeted therapy would be of benefit in terms of shrinking cancers. 
So we now have data from a number of sources, both with a combination of the antibodies, trastuzumab and bevacizumab, but also with a combination of small molecule receptor tyrosine kinase inhibitors for VEGF and HER2. That suggests that the combination is better than just using HER2-targeted therapy alone in the metastatic setting. And so this has led to the BETH trial in which this is being looked at prospectively as either a standard trastuzumab-based regimen or trastuzumab plus bevacizumab. And I think it's a genuinely fascinating approach and hopefully one that will prove positive. Certainly in the metastatic setting, Mark Pegram's data, which has been recently updated from the UCLA group, would suggest that there's a significant population of patients with advanced disease who get genuine benefit with no chemotherapy whatsoever in the equation and with fairly high response rates and clinical benefit rates for the combination. And of course, you've been a leader in terms of looking at anti-angiogenic strategies in general, including bevacizumab. Anything new on how it works? I mean, we used to think about, quote, it was going to choke off the blood supply, and now it doesn't seem that straightforward. Yeah, I don't think it's straightforward at all. I think, you know, what we have learned about bevacizumab in particular, but VEGF therapy in general, is that it's probably doing multiple things simultaneously. One is the classic Judah Folkman idea of shutting off new blood vessel formation. We also know from preclinical work from Rakesh Jain and his colleagues that there's a process of what's called vascular normalization going along in some tumors, where by pruning small vessels, one may be increasing the ability of therapeutics to get to the tumor via larger vessels. We have certainly considerable preclinical data suggesting that a number of chemotherapeutics, when combined with anti-VEGF therapy, may have increased anti-endothelial activity. The taxanes, for instance, are pretty good at killing endothelium. And we also now have some data that suggests that VEGF receptors may be present at least in some breast cancers and may have a biologic role there. So I think as with everything else in life, what was simple is now complex. Last thing I want to ask you about, actually, sort of more of a macro view of where we're heading with systemic therapy of cancer in general, and specifically about a paper presented at ASCO in gastric cancer, looking at trastuzumab. Eric von Kutzen presented, I thought it was a stunning paper, showing that in this European study, I guess about 20% of these patients had HER2-positive gastric cancer, and in fact, they had a benefit using trastuzumab in the adjuvant setting. What did you think about that paper? And do you think we're moving more towards looking at the targets rather than the primary tissue? Well, I've believed throughout most of my career that biology is destiny. And I think the gastric paper that you mentioned is a perfect example of that. There is no particular reason that a growth factor receptor and its ligands have to be attached to a particular tumor that has a particular name and a particular organ. And we've certainly seen with the epidermal growth factor receptor, its presence in multiple organs and therapeutic benefit in multiple organs. Now, that's not to say that it will always work the same in all of those organs or that it will respond the same in all those organs, but it is to say that we need to think more broadly. If I can add a forward-looking thing, because I've been thinking about this a fair amount recently in speaking to colleagues who have been looking more and more at genomics and transcriptomics and all of the new technologies that are coming along, I think it is fairly clear that sometime within the next five years, we will be able to do genomics on everyone's tumor probably for the price of $1,000 or $2,000, somewhere in that range, probably within the next five years, maybe even sooner at the pace at which things are picking up. I banged my head on New Year's Eve and spent an hour in the emergency room and spent $1,000 getting some stitches 
if for the price of an hour in the emergency room, one can know everything there is to know about the genes that are expressed in my tumor, I'd be willing to spend that money. And I think the medical system is likely to be willing to spend it as well. I think the progressive digitalization of genomic data and its ready access by patients and physicians is going to be a truly liberating phenomenon. I think the likelihood that we are going to find not just novel therapies, but perhaps apply older therapies to populations of patients who we never thought those therapies would be beneficial in, I think is going to have some stunning implications as we go forward. You know, kind of when you said that, I guess one of the things that popped into my head was the whole story with TDM1. I think a lot of surgeons may not know about that because it's, I mean, it's not even available, but such a fascinating concept. Can you explain what that is? So TDM1 is trastuzumab chemically linked to a metansinoid poison. Metansine was an agent that was looked at in the late 1970s and early 1980s in clinical trials. It had a fair amount of toxicity and therefore never made it into the big leagues. It literally sat on the shelf for close to three decades until it was taken off the shelf and looked at as a potentially ideal partner with trastuzumab, where one could link it to the trastuzumab and in essence used the trastuzumab as a truck that brought the poison to the cancer cell, dumped it in the cancer cell, and allowed you to do targeted therapy, not of the HER2 pathway particularly, but rather targeted therapy of a toxic, arguably chemotherapeutic agent. This has been brought to fruition in a number of phase two trials, some of which are still ongoing, partly with TDM1 as a single agent, partly with TDM1 in combination now with other novel biologic agents. I would say that pretty much everyone who has used this drug in the clinic has been impressed with its activity. I mean, anecdotally, I've had a number of patients now who've been on this agent for more than a year who had progressed through prior trastuzumab, prior lapatinib, and a variety of chemotherapeutic agents. So I think this is one of several novel agents in the HER2 space that are going to be very exciting. We also, of course, have other agents such as neratinib and pertuzumab that are targeting other aspects of the HER2 pathway that I think are just fascinating, and even others that are coming along that are targeting downstream mediators such as the PI3 kinase portion of the HER2 pathway, which in combination with the more upstream targets may give us huge activity for this population of patients. I think, you know, the HER2 story continues to evolve and I would say continues to excite. We are getting ever so close to knocking out these cancers as a major problem in breast cancer. And one of the really cool things about TDM1 is even though it is delivering chemo, these patients don't get nausea, vomiting, hair loss, you know, chemo kind of side effects as it's such a small dose. Yeah, it's a pretty well-tolerated therapy. One will see thrombocytopedia in some patients. One will see some fatigue in some patients. But in general, it's been an exceptionally well-tolerated therapy. So the last thing I want to ask you about is, you know, when we do our symposium, we do live symposium, we always poll the audience about different things. And one of the things we've been asking recently is, what is it that you're most interested in? We just did a symposium at the ASCO GI meeting. We're covering all the GI tumors. And guess what was number one on their list? Gastric. They wanted, <laughs> they wanted to hear about the HER2 thing. And in San Antonio, we polled the audience. And what's the thing you're most interested in hearing about? Actually, it was triple negative. Triple believe it negative. Or, something okay. that there was no interest in, you know, probably uh, a year ago. Yeah. And all of a sudden, I'm not even, I don't know whether, you know, surgeons and people outside of medical oncology know, you know, sort of what's going on there. But maybe you can just talk briefly about where we are. You know, we talked about ER and HER2 and the exciting things that are going on there. But now, for those patients without either one of those markers, where we are. 
Sure. So triple negative breast cancer, I guess, first off, is fascinating in of itself. If one looks at the medical literature, and I did this once doing a Medline search, looking for the term triple negative breast cancer, you know, it doesn't exist in the medical literature before about 2004, 2005. So this is, while it's always been there, certainly, and it's always been a problem, we haven't focused on it as a particular area of research until very recently. That focus comes about in part because of exclusion, and that is to say separating out estrogen receptor and HER2, but also as a result of inclusion, and that is to say that as a result of the genomic analyses, we know that there are now distinct populations within that triple negative group that are probably biologically similar. One of those biologic similarities, which is pretty important as it turns out, is DNA damage repair. Certainly the BRCA mutant patients, and most BRCA1 mutation patients fall into the triple negative category, but also non-BRCA mutation patients who are triple negative appear to have altered DNA damage repair. And in particular, for the triple negatives, many of these patients have upregulation of some DNA damage repair enzymes, and in particular one called PARP, or P-A-R-P. Data from a number of centers looking at this in a preclinical setting suggested that if one shut off PARP and then gave a DNA-damaging agent in the setting of a tumor that already had problems with the other DNA damage repair function of BRCA1, that one could get a significant increased cell kill with the platinating agent. And this, of course, led to the BIPAR trial that randomized patients to carboplatin, gemcitabine, with or without PARP inhibition that Joyce O'Shaughnessy presented at the ASCO meetings last summer. This was striking data, even though it was a randomized phase two trial, it showed an overall survival advantage that led very quickly to the development of a large randomized phase three trial that started in June of last year within weeks of the ASCO meeting and which is scheduled to close sometime next week. Actually, it's fascinating to think of, uh, trying to remember the last time a phase three metastatic proof of concept trial opened and closed in eight months. I'm not sure I've seen one like it before. I think people were seeing that as a way to get something that looked valuable to their patient. In a hurry, yes. And we participated in that trial and put a lot of patients on ourselves. Not to mention, I guess it really doesn't add any toxicity. I think it may be a little bit too soon to know that for sure. Certainly in the randomized phase two trial, it appeared to be relatively non-toxic. I'm still somewhat suspicious of the idea that one could monkey with DNA damage repair and have no toxicity. But I think, you know, we'll see that in a large, well-conducted phase three trial. And I guess the other thing is how close are we to looking at this in the adjuvant setting? I mean, if the phase three in the metastatic setting is positive with not much toxicity, you think it'll go into the adjuvant setting? Yes, there are already pilot trials that are far along in development. And indeed, some of them are opening up in the fairly near future. So yeah, I think it is highly likely that this will move into the adjuvant setting post haste.